I know that uh, each time we're through, there are, in fact, this morning even, I've met a couple of people who uh, have become part of the congregation here in more recent times, so maybe don't know you as well. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask my family, wherever they are, to stand over here. They love this. They love this. Lori and uh, Tamron and Corbin. All right, you guys can sit back down. Um, and uh, it's a blessing to, uh, to have uh, them with me. I do a lot of traveling and speaking on my own. So whenever my family's with me, I, I, I particularly enjoy that. Um, as, as was said, we are serving in Zambia, which is uh, central, uh, South Central Africa. And um, our burden is to see the gospel advance um, from Zambia to all of Africa. And um, uh, there is, uh, I think when we think of Africa, we, we, people often say, well, you know, it's, it's a country. Well, it's not. It's actually a continent. And there are 54 countries on the continent of Africa. And still, uh, because the northern part of the continent is uh, predominantly Islamic or Muslim, in fact, uh, up towards up in the northern region, right across the fat part of the, of the continent, uh, lies in what we call the 1040 window, which is the least reached areas of the world. And there's a whole section of Africa um, the 1040, the 1040 window. About 41% of Africans identify as, uh, as Muslim, and um, uh, 987 uh, people groups that uh, are are what we would call unreached, meaning there are, there is no church that is actively and aggressively seeking to evangelize those. Uh, those peoples. And so that really forms the burden for what we, um, we are doing in, in Africa. One of, those, one of those places that we have been involved with since 2010 is the country of Sudan. And uh, in 2010, we traveled uh, to what is now South Sudan, about a year before they claimed independence. Um, that was on the backside of about 50, two different civil wars, 50 years of civil war. Um, 1.9 million civilians were killed during that war between the northern part of the country and the southern um, part of, of the country. They proclaimed their independence, became the 54th country uh, in the world in 2010. And it was later in that year that we began sending folks into South Sudan um, to train pastors that were in that were in that, uh, in that country. Um, I spend a lot of my time uh, with Central Africa Baptist University where we are seeking to train servant leaders for Great Commission Living. And uh, Pastor Dave mentioned some of the areas uh, that we're involved with. Um, we have about 140 students on our campus this year, uh, starting in January, uh, our new academic year, uh, from 10 different countries. And... Um, uh, diploma degree, uh, also a master's degree that we're offering, and, um, and then also recognizing that there are a lot of men in ministry who are currently pastoring in evangelical churches across Africa who have never had any training of any kind. In fact, um, it's estimated that only one out of ten pastors in our, in our region of, of the continent have ever had any formal theological training. And so we are sending our faculty, we are sending even some of our graduates uh, off our campus uh, and doing week-long training modules 
with cohorts of pastors. Uh, we're doing that in, in about eight or nine different countries. Uh, and uh, the last couple weeks, we had three different classes that were, were going on. That's also what we're doing up in, in, in South Sudan. We call it theological studies by extension. So this was a recent cohort of pastors who is studying in Kenya uh, in, this, uh, in, in, this, in this program. Emmanuel and Regina Juma are, are South Sudanese. And uh, as we began this training program in Juba, South Sudan, back in 2010-2011, Emmanuel became part of that uh, training and then eventually made application and moved with his wife to Zambia, uh, finished his uh, undergrad in 2015, uh, stayed on for his master's degree, finished that in 2018. Then in 2019, he did a year internship, a pastoral internship with us at Kitwe Church. And uh, so since uh, 2015, we have been, um, I've been pastoring, one of the pastors at Kitwe Church. And so Emmanuel and his wife came uh, and did an internship with us. Then they went to Uganda and worked in a Bible institute there for a couple of years. Um, and then this last year, uh, Kitwe Church voted to be the sending church for the Juma family. And so this photo was taken in December. Uh, they came back from Uganda. They came to back to Zambia. And uh, we ordained him to the ministry uh, out of Kitwe Church and then commissioned them as our first missionary church planters and sent them to South Sudan. So late December, um, they moved into Juba, South Sudan. And earlier this year, in January, um, they began a Bible study, a Sunday Bible study that meets in the afternoons on Sunday, and uh, gathering people from the Lemon Gaba community, uh, proclaiming the gospel. Uh, they've seen a couple of people profess faith in Christ. And our prayerful goal as a church, Kitwe Church, is that Community Bible Church will be uh, what comes out of this effort there in Juba, South Sudan with the Jumas. And uh, it's been a blessing to see our church family understand missions as we've been teaching that over the last couple of years and then um, uh, uh, make commitments amongst our membership for intentional giving to missions and um, uh, be able to see those funds start to come in. We also budget 12% of our, of our budget um, whatever comes in every week in our offerings, 12% of that also goes to missions at Gateway Church. And so we were able to send uh, the Jumas to South Sudan. We're also able to uh, participate with Faith Baptist Church of Riverside, uh, which is the first church that we were part of planting there in Kitwe. Uh, so Kitwe Church is partnering with Faith to send um, Mohammed Ismail. Uh, he is planting up in northern Sudan in the city of Khartoum. And then Ryan and Samantha um, have uh, this past year gone to eastern Ethiopia where they are learning Somali and seeking to reach the Somali population. And so we're partnering with another Africa, church in Africa um, uh, assisting them as they send the Shiel family uh, for, for that church planting. And so I, I think the point that uh, I hope that you're getting is the proclamation of the gospel, discipleship, 
training those that God places in ministry through the context of the local church, healthy local churches being the goal that will eventually grow and take on the responsibility of sending missionaries and church planters to the unreached peoples and the unreached areas of Africa, from Africa to Africa with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It costs us um, $4,500 a year to have a student at CABU. Um, they cover about 2,000 of that through, through uh, tuition and scholarships. And then um, we supplement $2,500 per student to have someone like Emmanuel on our campus for, uh, for a year. And so we would, um, in fact, part of Merrimack's support goes to help with some of that, uh, the cost of training men like Emmanuel and, and like Sister uh, Regina um, for, for ministry. If you want more information, cabcusa.com. Please just take down that, uh, that email address and you can, um, you can jump on there and there's information, there's ways to, uh, to support the work uh, and, uh, and pray for us. Uh, do pray for our family. Uh, we are here until the end of October. Uh, so a seven-month stint this time here in the U.S. And uh, Tamron, who is here today, will be headed off to Cedarville in August. And when we head back to Zambia, we'll have an only child. So we end from seven to one. And um, so Corbin is looking forward to all of that attention, I think. And, uh, and so, yeah, pray for, pray for our family. Of course, Cherith uh, is there in Zambia right now. And Ashlyn is planning to join IBM Global and raise support uh, later this year and join us in the work uh, by the end of this year, God willing. So we appreciate your continued prayers uh, for our family. Take your Bible, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 21. Today, Christians around the world celebrate Palm Sunday or sometimes referred to as the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in our text, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus has reached the climax of his ministry. He is publicly presenting himself to the nation of Israel as their Messiah King. If they are willing to accept, if they are willing to receive him, he is officially presenting himself as the long-awaited, the long-promised Messiah. You know, we live in a world that is in desperate need of a Savior. Not a political Messiah, not a political party, not someone to come and rescue us, not Republicans and Democrats, but, but um, and not an economic Savior. The, the world is in desperate need of a Savior who will forgive men of their sin and set them eternally free. I mentioned a moment ago the 987 people groups on the continent of Africa who have never one time heard of this Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Over 380 million people live amongst these yet-to-be-reached uh, people groups. And yet, we know already in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus has very clearly stated, in fact, in Matthew chapter number 16 and verse number 18, in response to Peter's affirmation that 
that you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus responds and says to him in verse number 18, chapter 16, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus Christ is building his church. Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem, knowing full well what he will encounter when he gets there. He knows that he will be facing suffering and death. Because, you see, Jesus, in his promise to build his church around the world, against which the gates of hell will not stand, would require the suffering and the death of Jesus. The church is built upon the foundation of the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he promises, he makes this statement that he would build his church against which the very gates of hell would not prevail. And then Jesus foretells the first of three, three instances recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. It says in verse 21 of chapter 16, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day rise from the dead. So it begins to clearly, what appears to me anyway, to be a, a very clear explanation of the fact that he is going to Jerusalem and in Jerusalem he will suffer and he will die. What is, how does Peter respond? Peter in chapter 16 turns aside and pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke Jesus and says to him, Far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. You see, the disciples hearing of this notion of his death reject it entirely. They had their own plans for Jesus. They anticipated that he would set up a political kingdom where Romans were removed from power and where the Edomite king Herod, who claimed to be a king of the Jews, would be deposed. They were preparing for a Jewish king, the son of David, that had been prof uh, prophesied and promised in the Old Testament. So what does Jesus do again in chapter 17? Jesus again foretells his death and resurrection. As they were gathering in Galilee, he says to them in verse 20, 22, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and, they will, and he will be raised on the third day. And what is the discussion immediately following that, that proclamation? Chapter 18, it says that the disciples came to Jesus with the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You see, the disciples were concerned about which one of them would be the greatest in his coming kingdom. They were arguing and jockeying for positions. And again, a third time in chapter 20 and verse number 17, Jesus foretells his death as he's now on the road and as they're walking up towards Jerusalem, he takes the twelve aside and again he tells them that when they get to Jerusalem, the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. Verse number 18. 
He will be delivered over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And how is that announcement followed up? It's followed up with the mother of James and John coming to Jesus and pulling him aside privately and wanting him to do whatever she would ask of him. And what was the question that she asked? I want you, when you come into your kingdom, to take my two boys and make one of them a throne on your right hand and give the other a throne on your left hand. Not to be outdone, we find that the other disciples, when they heard of this, they were angry. They were very upset with James and John for putting their mother up to trying to finagle them a place in this coming kingdom. Why were they so upset? Because they wanted that place in that kingdom. Now we come to our text in chapter number 21 and Jesus is drawing near unto Jerusalem. The king is coming as he had been promised. How were they to respond? How are we to respond? And I think in our text, in chapter number 21, there are three lessons that we can glean from, from this event, this triumphal entry, Jesus entering into Jerusalem and presenting himself as the Jewish Messiah. Notice in verse number 1 through 5, disciples are sent to prepare the way. The disciples prepare the way. It says in verse number one, as Jesus comes now to, to nears the Mount of Olives, it says that Jesus then sent two of his disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill that which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. First thing that we, that we recognize from the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem is that the disciples were sent to prepare the way for him. Disciples are sent in verse number one. You see, when God carries out as God is fulfilling his mission. As Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, he sends disciples, servants, who will do his work of building his kingdom. Jesus, as he comes into Jerusalem, is sovereignly in control. He is orchestrating the events that are surrounding the will of the Father in the entry of Jesus on this day. He is calmly ordering people and circumstances according to the will of the Father. May I remind you this morning that no matter how chaotic our world may appear, no matter how upside down your life may feel in this moment, Jesus is the sovereign controller of the universe and he is calmly executing the will of his heavenly Father. As he was orchestrating the events on this first Palm Sunday, he is also orchestrating the events on this Palm Sunday some 2,000 plus years later. Prepare his way. Disciples are sent to do that. Notice also these disciples were given very clear instructions in verse 2 through 5. 
They were told what to do, they were told where to go, and they were told what to say. It's almost as if this event was a test run for what was soon to come. Jesus would be crucified and rise again on the third day and he would appear to his disciples and he would again commission them to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, these disciples, their job was not to invent or to be clever or to convince anyone they were not to go off on their own to accomplish the task of God. They were to listen to their Lord's instructions and follow them. And though we don't know what exactly transpired as they loosened the reins and, and began to lead the donkey and the, and the colt away, we know that they obeyed the Lord Jesus and brought the animal to him. In fact, verse number 6 reminds us that disciples who prepare the way for the Savior are, are obedient. It says in, in verse number 6, the disciples went and did as the, as the Lord Jesus had, had commanded them. You see, the relationship that a disciple has with the master is a, is a, is a master-servant relationship. Jesus had a plan Jesus was executing the will of the Father. He knew that ultimately that would lead to his own death and resurrection. Jesus, as the Master and Lord, had the right to tell his disciples what to do. Their job was simply to obey. Obedience is expected of disciples. They were learners, they were followers, and they went and did, in verse number 6, exactly what Jesus had commanded. And by so doing, the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 was brought to pass. As they threw the coats on the, on the colt of the donkey, and as Jesus rode that colt into Jerusalem, as they spread their, their clothes and the palm branches uh, for this royal welcome, Matthew reminds us, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus is entering the city, not as a warrior. He is not mounted on a war horse. He has not come to overthrow the tyranny of, of the Roman Empire. Rather, he has come as the humble Savior to offer peace and salvation to the people. And so we are reminded this Palm Sunday that disciples are sent to prepare the way for the king. But secondly, we also see that disciples proclaim his coming. Verses 7 through 11 says they bring the donkey and the colt and Jesus is now sitting and they're coming through the gates of the city and, and people, are, people are, the crowd is spreading their, their coats and cutting branches from the tree. And as they are going, coming before the hymn and, and behind him are those who are proclaiming, they're, they're following this procession into the city of Jerusalem and they are, they are shouting in verse number 9, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
Verse 10 says, And as he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, or uh, the idea of an, of an earthquake. The, everybody was, was, w- knew what was happening. There was, there was a great stir as Jesus was entering into the city. Disciples not only prepare his way, but they proclaim his coming. This was a salvific proclamation. By the way, that is, that is our message, isn't it, to the nations? It is a message of salvation. We don't need better political systems and we don't need to fix all the world's problems. What the world needs to hear is the salvation that is offered to us through Jesus Christ. The word Hosanna. Hosanna to the son of David. That word Hosanna means save now. And the crowd was announcing his arrival into Jerusalem by by repeating this word, Hosanna, save us. Son of David. And those following behind were shouting and rejoicing and singing the word, Save us, deliver us, O Lord. Many of them, though they were crying out for to be saved, they were they were actually desiring to be saved from Roman occupation. You know, they they, they were happy with, with a Jesus that would save them from hunger. I mean, like he did with the, the five loaves and, and the, 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 the two fishes. You know, as long as, as, long as you, you want to keep producing miracle food, hey, we're all into that. Save us. We, we need to be saved from sickness and death. I mean, keep, keep uh, healing blind people and, and giving deaf people their... They're, they're hearing back and the lame are walking and, and yeah, we, we need to be delivered from, from those things. We want to be saved from our poverty and our suffering. Let me ask you this morning, what, from what are you seeking salvation? What do you perceive this morning as your biggest need or your biggest problem? I tell you, in Africa, it's the, we, we, we want the, the fix-it Jesus. <laughs> the, the Jesus that brings health and, and prosperity. The Jesus that will show up and, and fix everything for us. We want the superpower Jesus. The one who is more powerful than, than spirits and can overcome bad luck. And, and if you go and proclaim a, a superpower Jesus and a fix-it Jesus, everybody will pray that prayer and raise their hand and they'll all buy into that Jesus. The world is looking for saviors. Our world today wants to be delivered from war and injustice and oppression. But they do not want to be confronted with their sin, with their need for repentance and humility and obedience to God in Christ. But you see this, we're reminded that this declaration, this, that disciples declare and proclaim His coming. They prepare His way, they proclaim His coming. Not only a salvific proclamation, but we see in the text, it was a messianic proclamation. The son of David was a messianic title. And Matthew's used this throughout, the, throughout his gospel. In fact, the, 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 uh, the angel to Joseph in chapter 1 in verse 20 
referred to Joseph as a son of David. The two blind men in chapter 9 and verse 27 cried out to Jesus as he passed by. They called him the son of David. The people asked the question, is this the son of David? In chapter 12 and verse 23. The Canaanite woman whose daughter was possessed by demons cried out to Jesus for healing for her daughter and called him the son of David. And again, two blind men in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, as he came up through Jericho towards Jerusalem, they cried out to him as the son of David to have mercy on them. Now as he enters Jerusalem to present himself as the Messiah, the people are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. This is a messianic title. The Messiah had been desired and prayed for every year at this time. The people longed for a deliverer. They longed for a savior. The Messiah had been prepared for. We find in chapter 3 of Matthew that John the Baptist was referred to as the one who had come to prepare the way for the Messiah. This was also an angelic proclamation. Hosanna in the highest. The angel to, to Joseph had, had told him that, that Mary would be with child and she would bring forth a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. Now get the picture here. Here, here is this fever pitch of excitement and anticipation. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the son of David? In fact, they're rejoicing and they're calling him by that name as he comes through the gates of Jerusalem, as he comes up towards the temple. It reminds you that it's Passover week. And for centuries, for generations... The Jewish people on this particular day, the 10th the of Nisan, that the people were to bring, to select the Paschal lamb, the Passover lamb. They were to select a lamb without blemish and without spot. They were to bring that lamb into their home. They were to clean that lamb. They were to care for that lamb. They were to prepare that lamb. For four days later, they would sacrifice that lamb for Passover. And here on this very day, Jesus, the Lamb of God that John the Baptist had pointed to, behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Here comes this Lamb through the city gates presenting himself to the people. Who is this, the people ask? Oh, this is the prophet Jesus of Nazareth. This is the son of David. You see, they, they, the, the, the nation of Israel, these, these people at this time, they, they, they got the whole son of David part, right? The sovereign son of David. They, they were looking for a king. They were, they were looking for someone uh, who would bring national peace and prosperity to the nation of Israel, restore them to their former glory. But they totally missed the sacrificial son of Abraham part. They hadn't reconciled the, the conquering king with the suffering servant. A story in Genesis chapter 22 of, of Abraham. 
when God came to Abraham and told him to take his son, his only son Isaac, and to go to Mount Moriah, and there on Mount Moriah he was to offer his son Isaac upon the altar. Early the next morning, Abraham gets up and he packs up and he brings his servant, takes his son, takes the knife and the fire, and they travel to the backside of Mount Calvary, Mount Moriah. And up the mountain they go, just the two of them, Abraham and his son Isaac. And there they begin to build a stone altar. And somewhere in that process, Isaac says to his dad, I see the fire and I see the knife, but where is the lamb? Where is the sacrifice? And Abraham says, my son, God will provide himself for himself a sacrifice. Abraham binds Isaac and puts him on the altar and, and, and lifts the knife to plunge the knife into his, his own son in obedience to God the Father. And, and the Father from heaven stops him. And there in the thicket was a, a ram. And the son came off the altar and the ram was put on as a substitute. You understand that Jesus came to die as our substitute? The lamb to take away our sins? We are to prepare his way. We are reminded to proclaim his coming. And thirdly, we are reminded that disciples prioritize his worship. Probably the next day, Jesus enters the temple in verse number 12 and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, the children crying out in the temple, here it is again, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? You see, disciples are to prepare his way to proclaim his coming and to prioritize his worship. You see in verse 12 and 13, the priority of pure worship. You see, the temple was a symbol of the faith of the Jewish community. And yet their, their faith and their religious systems and the, the going through the motions of, of, their, uh, of their faith had become so corrupted that Jesus is angry. He's indignant. And he walks in and he, he drives out the animals and he overturns the money changers, the tables of the money changers and, and those who are selling pigeons or doves in the, in the temple. See, history tells us that by this time in, in Jewish history, the, the family of the high priest ran this, this whole cartel. These booths and, and the selling of animals for sacrifices and the exchanging of money was all ran by the, the family of the, of the high priest. You see, they had to approve that the sacrificial animals that, that people were bringing for sacrifice were kosher. And of course, they would then find something wrong with those animals so that the people then had to purchase the sacrificial animals at exorbitant prices from them. 
Not only that, but Exodus chapter 30 and verse number 13 tells us that there was a temple tax that each male had to pay each year at this time. Oh, but they'd worked it out where, where this temple tax, this one shekel, it had to be a temple shekel. And of course, you had no temple shekels. You had Roman money. So now you had to come in and you had to exchange the funds. You had to exchange your Roman shekels for, for a temple shekel at an exorbitant exchange rate. Even the poorest of the poor, those who, would, who could not afford to bring a lamb for sacrifice, they would bring a pigeon or a dove uh, for a sacrifice, they were ripping those people off. And Jesus was, was furious. Why? Because not only was the temple a symbol of the faith of the Jewish community, but it was also a symbol of faith to the nations. All of this activity was taking place in the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was the place that was set up to attract the nations to come and worship the true God. And instead, they'd taken that place that was to attract the nations to come and worship the true God, and they had made that into a livery stable and a place to barter and make money. God's name must be great amongst the nations. In fact, uh, this, this abuse of worship had been taken, taking place for, for many centuries. Malachi speaks of it in Malachi chapter 1 and verse number 10. Oh, that there was one among you who would shut the doors to the temple, that you might not kindle fire upon my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering at your hand. For, verse 11, from from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. The priority of pure worship and the priority of true worship. Here we see in the text that again Jesus proves that he is the Messiah by healing the blind and the lame there in the temple. In response to the, the prophecies of Isaiah chapter 29 and Zephaniah chapter number 3. Again giving undeniable proof of who he claimed to be. There in the temple the children are glad and accepting of him. They're speaking the truth of who he is by offering him these words of praise, Hosanna to the son of David. What was the response of the religious leaders? They were indignant. They rejected him completely. They ignored the scripture and they rejected their savior. I wonder this morning if we are like the children or if we are more like these religious leaders. As Jesus comes and presents himself to us, what is your response? Jesus publicly presented himself as their long-awaited Messiah. 
how would they respond? Would they receive him? Would they reject him? Would they ignore him? How have you responded to him? How have you responded in your heart to him? He comes again to us on this Palm Sunday. And to some of us, he is inviting you to receive him. He is offering himself to you as your Savior, the Savior from sin. He invites you to obey him and to worship him. Are you, have you acknowledged the Messiah as your King? Are you preparing for him? Are you proclaiming him? Are you worshiping him in spirit and in truth? The praise of the crowds is good, but it is disciples, disciples who bow to his demand and obey his will, who will carry out his mission in the world. Father, I pray that as we pause in this season to remember that you indeed were the lamb offered the lamb to take away the sins of the world. Father, I pray that those truths would become intensely personal to each one of us. For those who have not yet humbled themselves and acknowledged and accepted and received you as their substitute sacrifice, I pray Dear God, that you'd be merciful, that you'd open their blinded spiritual eyes to see the glories of who you are. They might humble their, their hearts and they might believe and receive you as, as their Savior from sin. And Father, for those of us who are your followers, we are your disciples. We rejoice in our redemption. We rejoice in the fact that you came and that you were sacrificed upon the cross and on the third day you rose again. And that in your providence that you called us to salvation through the work of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for saving us. Oh God, may we be about your business. May we recognize that, that you are the master, we are the servant. That as your disciples, we are to obey your commands, we are to follow your will, we are to carry out your mission. We are to prepare a path. We are to proclaim the good news of your gospel. And we are to worship you in spirit and in truth. May you be glorified by saving those who do not yet know you and by exalting your son in the lives of those of us who do know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.